Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. They have kept kids first. And in Congress, Senator Mike Enzi of Wyoming and Representative Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania have introduced the Child Welfare Provider Inclusion Act. 76 members of the House of Representatives and 13 senators have co-sponsored this legislation to keep kids first. What happens to children who are never matched with a family and age out of the foster care system? That happens to 20,000 kids every year and they face a very uncertain future. They are far less likely to finish high school or go to college. Around 60% of the boys and 50% of the girls end up in jail at some stage. One third of homeless young adults were in foster care. The question that remains is will Americans and the remainder of Congress take action to protect the freedom of these agencies to connect the brave, loving, and selfless families with the more than 430,000 children on the waiting list. Here to discuss this issue today are four people who can each shed light on an important part of the crises that we are facing. Shannon Royce is the director of the Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiatives at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where she liaises regularly with faith communities and organizations around the country that are battling both the opioid crisis and caring for children. Karen Strawn has fostered more than 40 children and adopted 11, including her son, Martin, who credits his Catholic adoption agency, St. Vincent's, with allowing him to feel loved and safe for the first time. Karen is a licensed foster parent through St. Vincent's, which is party to an ACLU lawsuit against the state of Michigan, seeking to overturn its law that protects faith-based agencies. And Eric Tietzel is president of the Family Policy Alliance of Kansas, a vibrant, part of a vibrant national alliance of pro-family state groups, Eric led the charge in Kansas to pass a bill protecting faith-based agencies. If you haven't already picked up uh, the papers that we have outside, please look online to see our new backgrounder on faith-based child welfare by Natalie Goodnow. And we welcome you to tweet about this event using the hashtag KeepKidsFirst. Lastly, when we have audience question and answer at the end, please identify yourself before you ask a question. I have a PowerPoint presentation, and unfortunately, because of the storm, the screen behind me is not working, so you'll need to look at the screens on the sides um, to see the different pictures. And I'm trusting the gentleman upstairs to work through the PowerPoint for me. 
So my name again is Shannon Royce, uh, the director of the Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiatives. And uh, it's my privilege to be here with you and talk with you about children in the foster care system. I'm particularly focusing today on uh, those kids in the system as a result of the opioid crisis. So the, the piece of our the piece of our discussion today that I will cover will focus heavily on the opioid crisis and what it is doing in terms of the evidence uh, for kids in foster care. You know, we know intuitively and have known for some time intuitively that foster care numbers are going up as a result of the opioid crisis, um, but ASPE, the division of the department that does planning and evaluation, they're one of the research arms of the department, actually did a study that I'd like to share some of the details with you today because I think it really is enlightening. So it's great to be with you and let's, let's move forward. So the next slide will show much like Karen's family, um, who have adopted uh, or fostered 13 children who were the result of addiction in their own families. They've adopted two of those children and have a third child um, in the process of adoption. If you could turn to the next slide, please. So the Swaffords are from, the next slide, please. The Swaffords are from Ohio and um, have been engaged in fostering for the last 10 years. Uh, they have adopted, as I mentioned, the two boys in the picture um, and are working to adopt the third child as well. So we've seen a huge increase in foster care numbers as a result of the opioid crisis. Uh, between 2000 and 2013, the rate of babies born addicted to um, substances, most often opioids, has increased five times. And so the uh, infants coming into the system as well as older children is really increasing dramatically. Um, in Kentucky, uh, we've seen an estimated 60,000 children living with a grandparent um, in kinship care. They are the um, the most uh, most families with kinship care is in Kentucky with 60,000 children living in kinship care, um, 8,200 more in foster care. So we're seeing several states that have a real crisis, and we'll go through, um, through that in the next slides. The next slide just starts with the basics. Um, opioids, we probably have all heard of this, but often don't understand it. So your opioids are pain relievers that are used. So if you have an accident or if you have a sports injury, um, even dental procedures, often a doctor or dentist will prescribe an opioid. Um, if they're prescribed in low doses for short periods and are followed um, according to doctor's prescription, you, you will often be totally fine. But unfortunately, there's a euphoric effect for many people who take an opioid even for a short period of time. And as a result, we're seeing significant increases in, um, in addiction and in overdose. So you have your legal opioids, like the pain relievers your doctor would prescribe, oxycodone, uh, Vicodin, morphine, and others. And you have your illegal substances like heroin, illicit fentanyl, and carfentanyl. The fentanyl 
um, drugs, the illicitly produced fentanyl, are the reason um, we're seeing such incredible increases in our overdose rates. The next slide. This just gives you a picture of the opioid epidemic by the numbers. Um, Emily mentioned we lose 116 people um, every day from opioid overdose. So that means in the hour that we spend together today, we'll lose 12 people. Or excuse me, we'll lose five people. Every 12 minutes, we lose someone to an opioid overdose. 11.5 million people misuse opioid uh, prescriptions every year. Um, and frankly, one of the main reasons we're seeing such a crisis um, with opioids is that so often people are getting addicted to a prescription opioid that their doctor gives them for a valid reason. Often they really are experiencing significant pain from an injury or surgery, and they are becoming addicted to that. So we're really seeing a significant crisis uh, when it comes to opioids. The next slide. This is where we move into drug mortality and its effect um, in the foster care system. This is a little bit of a complicated slide, so let me explain it to you, and I'm actually going to do this by my notes so that I make sure I get it right. So this slide shows how drug overdose deaths have increased over time. Look first at the 2016 slide, which is the bottom right of the slide there. Um, in this map, we divide the nation into four quartiles according to their rates of drug overdose deaths. Those with the highest rates of overdose deaths are in the dark blue, and the others are progressively lighter blue. By definition, one-fourth of counties are in each group since we're dealing with the quartiles. We'll then look at the earlier years, so 2004 in your upper left, 2008 upper right, 2012 in the lower left. And what you'll see in those earlier years is how many counties have levels of drug use deaths equal to the rates of each quartile in 2016. So if you look at the 2016 numbers, you see 784 per quartile. And if you look back, for example, at 2004, the lowest quartile had 87% of overdose deaths as compared to 25% in 2016. The highest overdose deaths in 2004 was only 1% compared to 25% in 2016. So we are seeing dramatic increases in overdose deaths um, around the nation by county. Go to the next slide. So in this slide, we're looking at um, overdose death rates and foster care entry rates. And again, if you look at the uh, description on the right, you've got uh, by median, the, um, the counties in red are those in which both drug mortality and foster care are high. And the counties in, uh, in light blue in the bottom left are those in which foster care and drug overdose deaths are blue. So this slide shows the interplay between the two phenomena, foster care entry rates and rates of fatal drug overdoses. The legend shows a grid, two-by-two two grid, in which drug mortality in the county is either high or low, and that's by the national median, and foster care placement rates are either high 
or low, again, by the national median. So if you go to the next slide, what you'll see are the percentage of change in foster care rate um, for 2012 to 2016. The slide shows the rates of foster care placement, the number of children in foster care per 100,000 children in the population, and how that has changed in the last four years. And this is the last four years for which we have numbers. We're always just slightly behind, of course, in our record keeping and our number and data uh, set, and so we're looking at 2012 to 2016. While nationally the number of children in foster care has increased by 10% across the nation, there's a lot of variation at the local level. So counties in yellow and red on this map have seen increases at varying levels. Those shown in red have seen increased increases of over 30% in, the, in that four-year period. So we've got massive uh, quadrants of our nation that are seeing dramatic increases in uh, children being placed in foster care as a result of the opioid crisis. If you go to the next slide, this slide we're trying to show um, and help understand the correlation, or of course we're not looking at causation, we, we understand we can't do that, but we're looking at the correlation uh, between deaths in a county and reports of maltreatment, substantiated reports, and foster care placements. So if you look at the left-hand side, what you see is with an increase of 10% in drug overdose deaths in a county, what we expect to see is 2.3% increase in reports of maltreatment, and maltreatment would be abuse, neglect uh, cases, a 2.4% increase in substantiated reports, and that means there's enough evidence to decide yes, this is deemed abuse or neglect. And finally, a 4.4% increase in foster care placements. Now, my question when I saw that was, oh, that, do that doesn't make sense. Why would it be higher foster care placements than reports of maltreatment or substantiated reports? And the increase is as a result of the seriousness of the cases. So cases associated with drug abuse tend to be more serious. Um, the, the effects are not just a question of volume, but a question of severity. And so we're seeing this increase for the increase of drug overdose deaths. We're seeing an increase in reported cases, in substantiated cases, and in foster care placements. You can go to the next slide. This is just another picture, just to give us um, the big picture, broad understanding of what we have seen over the years in um, foster care caseloads. Very high um, in the early 2000s, and again, I had to question this myself because it didn't make sense to me why it was so high. It went low uh, around 2012 and began increasing again. So what we saw in uh, those early years when caseloads were so high was this was really more about the low exit rates at that time in the foster care system. States and we nationally have taken significant steps to increase um, adoption of these children and increase placement um, in more permanent settings. And as a result, the numbers were declining 
until 2012. And in 2012, we started seeing such a significant increase because the opioid crisis was really taking hold in our nation. You can go to the next slide. So since this slide was created, you see on the left that um, an NAS baby, neonatal abstinence syndrome baby, um, in this slide was born every 25 minutes. The latest report that has just come out says that that actually is worse than the every 25 minutes. We're now seeing a baby born every 15 minutes with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Uh, we're looking at long-term understanding of what that means for that infant besides just the dramatic withdrawal that that baby will have to go through the long-term consequences are unclear to us because this is a new phenomenon. So we will be studying these children in the years to come and the consequences for their learning and their development. Right now, we just know that we're in significant crisis with dramatically more babies being born on a daily basis with neonatal abstinence syndrome. The picture on the right is a picture of a family in West Virginia that is so engaged, particularly in these in adopting and caring for the children born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Um, in West Virginia, their limit is six babies being placed in a family, and they're running out of placement. So we really do have a significant crisis in a number of states around the country. You can go to the next slide. Let's look at the key study findings. So key study findings out of this ASPE study are that it's not strictly an opioid crisis. We're not seeing opioid crisis everywhere. We're seeing methamphetamine. It's primary in some places. Polysubstance use is pervasive. Uh, we're seeing that collaboration between child welfare and substance use treatment providers can be difficult. So the understanding among child welfare providers about the opioid crisis and what we're dealing with um, is creating some challenges as well. Agencies and caseworkers are overwhelmed and often pessimistic about foster care placements and outcomes. The next slide. Communities are experiencing continued treatment shortages, particularly family-friendly shortages. And we, of course, have seen dramatic increases in the funding um, that's being sent into the states after the Cures Act. We have $3.6 billion going into a variety of services addressing the opioid crisis. Um, and so every state has a single state agency that is managing those funds. Lots of money going in, but we've got a shortage of family-friendly treatment. Many states and counties are experiencing intensified uh, shortage of foster homes. This is not the time for us to be pushing uh, faith-based foster care out of the system because we desperately need engaged faith-based placement agencies. And finally, medication-assisted treatment, which is deemed the best practice for those dealing with opioid addiction, is challenging in child welfare contexts, um, and so that is part of the struggle that we're finding from the key findings. The next slide. So we have to remember when you have a challenge and you have uh, those kinds of struggles in the system, it also means that there are opportunities. And so for our faith-based providers engaged in these programs, uh, we need improved treatment engagement and recovery support activities. We need to develop family-friendly uh, substance use treatment programs so that 
Um, if children are able to be safe in a home setting with parents who are struggling with addiction and those parents are sustaining um, their recovery over a period of time, we can work with those families in appropriate family-friendly ways to keep children who can be safe in those homes. And finally, we need to be building consensus across stakeholder groups regarding when children can remain safely in those homes and when reunification can take place. The next slide. Family First Prevention Services Act does provide new authority for child welfare agencies to fund various treatment services. And so we need to be looking at developing new programs that are family-friendly treatment programs that allow medication-assisted treatment to support these families as they are working their way through recovery. So next slide. Okay, so before we get to this, one thing, I talked with OGC yesterday, and I wanted to make sure uh, to address this really carefully and wisely with you. Those of you who are faith-based foster and adoption um, agencies, um, if you are engaged in fostering and adoption care and there is something that you believe substantially burdens your religious expression, uh, we would encourage you to file uh, a request for religious accommodation under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act with both ACF, Children and Families, and with OCR, uh, Civil Rights, and Emily's predecessor, Roger Severino is the head of OCR, and if you would like to file that kind of religious accommodation, we would encourage you to do so. Um, by filing that religious accommodation, the burden then shifts to the government, and the government has to show a compelling interest in um, maintaining the rule that they have, and they would then have to show that they're, they are operating in the least restrictive means. So if you should run into any um, burden to your religious expression in foster and adoption programs, we would encourage you to file a request for accommodation under RIFRA. So when we turn to practical things, uh, we at the Faith-Based Office have created an opioid practical toolkit, uh, which we'd be happy to share with you. It has a variety of recommendations from opening your doors to connecting and collaborating, and um, it's a very practical guide to how you can engage these issues. Uh, finally, the next slide. This is a way that you can get a hold of the Practical Toolkit, and I'm sure there's a list of those who are participating today, and if you'd like, I can email you a copy of that and um, further engage with you going forward. The final slide tells you how to reach our offices and how you can uh, work with us in the days to come. So thank you, Emily. Thank you very much, Shannon. That was very informative. Uh, next, I'd like to welcome Karen to give your comments. Yes. Good afternoon. Oh, that's nice. I'm so glad to be here today. Thank you for your attention. And again, my name is Karen Strawn. And may I start out by saying that being a foster parent, to say the least, isn't very easy. Now, when Martin and his brother came into our home, 
He was suffering from such severe abuse, severe trauma, and was so angry all the time. At just four years old, something so seemingly simple as a task of giving him a bath would bring up extreme fear and a whole lot of negative responses. And when I think about something so normal as a bath, something that an experience uh, normally would um, raise up warmth and nurturing feelings in a little one, that it reminded him instead of living in horror. My heart absolutely breaks when I think about the suffering and all that he went through at the hands of his own flesh and blood. And thanks to the healing power of God and to all the things and all the wonderful staff at St. Vincent and what they provided to us, I can certainly say that Martin now is on a path of success. To date, over the past 20 years, I have been a foster parent to 40 children and have adopted 11. And I want to continue to do so. And I feel very strongly about doing that with my trusted partners, my friends at St. Vincent. Not all foster care agencies are equal in the services that they provide. St. Vincent understands that without strong foster parents, there is no agency. And they have always gone far beyond and above what was expected to provide the support that we needed. Some of our caseworkers were also therapists, and they were always available when we needed them. In one situation that I'm thinking about, in the late evening, we were facing a particularly difficult circumstance with one of our foster children, and we really needed assistance. Our caseworker, Deb, came over immediately, even though she lived five to six miles away. And she stayed with us into late into the evening, of, into the night, actually, of, until everything was kind of calmed down and back to normal. Another time, one of my foster daughters was having such an emotional response based on her past experiences. And she really couldn't regain control of her feelings. St. Vincent, or Tina, was willing to do everything that we needed to get her calmed down. For 21 years, they have been in the trenches with me and have always been willing to talk, to give advice, and to support. There are people who say that if St. Vincent were to close their doors, that other agencies could just step in and fill in the gap. But that is not true. Their foundational bylaws and the way that they view humanity has a unique impact. It would be devastating if St. Vincent closed their doors. While there are a many good adoption agencies that do great works with kids, St. Vincent is special. Their faith-based environment makes a tangible difference in the way that they love and care for and nurture their families. St. Vincent has always cared about what's best for families 
and the social workers, this isn't just a job for them. Because of my extensive experience, in addition to being a foster parent, I'm also certified through the state to train other foster parents. I know from working with foster families within the communities that many of them would not be foster families or able or even willing to foster in the future without St. Vincent. Personally, I cannot imagine continuing as a foster parent without the loving support or the faith-based relationship and foundation of St. Vincent. I have developed relationships of trust with the staff. They have become like family to us. Now let me end with another story about a foster child. Her parents were divorced when she was two years old, and she bounced back and forth between her parents. When she was with her birth mom, her days were filled with a drunk parent, neglect, and extreme poverty. At age nine, she was even hospitalized with malnutrition, even in such a day and time as we have now. When she was with the birth dad, she experienced physical abuse, incest, and rape. She tried to fight back, but to no avail. When she was 16 years old, CPS became involved and filed charges against her birth father. She was taken from home and placed in an institution because there were no foster families. She often felt unwanted and unloved and afraid. Someone who heard of her plight volunteered to be her foster parent. And finally, she had a safe home. Then as a young adult, she was able to go to college, become a registered nurse and a paramedic. She married a kind and loving man, had two biological children, fostered 40, and adopted 11. I am that girl. I'm that woman. I like to tell this story when I speak to those who are considering foster care and adoption. And again, I must say, no, fostering isn't easy. Adopting adopting isn't easy. But if you ever wonder why we need more loving families to foster, stories like mine are why. We are not only caring for children with incredible needs, we are also raising adults who will become part of our greater community. In order to help kids, like I once was, we need more agencies, more families, rather than fewer. We didn't have enough families when I was a child. And the crisis is even more acute now. We need all hands on deck and absolutely need the loving ministry of faith-based organizations like St. Vincent. The most vulnerable children in our nation, children who have suffered so much, 
children like myself are counting on us to protect this important work and in doing so, protect their future. Thank you. This is my son, Martin. Thank you. Is it on? Go ahead. Today I would like to share with you. Today I would like to share with you why the work of Saint Vincent. Hold on. Up. Can you check? I think it's on. Go ahead. Is it on? Check. Maybe check, check, switch Karen and Martin's microphones. Thanks. There you go. Check. Okay, so that works. Today I would like to share with you why the work of St. Vincent is so important. When I was four years old, I became a foster child and was assigned service. In severe abuse. As a child, age four and younger, my three brothers and I had to learn to take care of ourselves because we were not taken care of. We had to learn to fend for ourselves. It felt like we were always hungry and always searching for food. Often, if I didn't find food, I just wouldn't eat. There wasn't really anyone watching after us, and we had no boundaries or structure. My birth mom was supposed to be for providing for the family, but she was gone a lot. My birth dad was the caretaker, but he was at best unavailable and at the worst seriously abusive. I remember being hit, and I just could not figure out why. It would be for things that just would not make sense. One time, I went to pick up a video game controller and my birth dad just yanked it out of my hands, picked me up and threw me against the sofa. I had no idea why. That was just how we lived. You never knew when he was going to overreact with anger and aggression. My birth dad would also blow up at my mom whenever she was home. I didn't really know what it felt like to be loved. So you can imagine, when St. Vincent came to get us, I wasn't very sad. I didn't want to be afraid anymore. The workers at St. Vincent were so loving and kind, and I felt very safe around them. My new family were the Strons. They were my foster family, and then they adopted me, and now they are my true family. At first, I was angry a lot, and I had to learn how to control my emotions. But my parents showed me a lot of love and patience. 
and we also had the help of St. Vincent Catholic Charities. In time, I learned what having a mom, a dad, and a family was supposed to mean. It means someone to take care of you, to look out for you, to watch over you, to protect you, to pray for you, to love you, and to help you learn new things. It means to have forever people to laugh with, to play with, travel with, to to spend time with. It means not having to be afraid anymore. Family is a gift, and I am so grateful to have a real family. Since I have become a strong, I have become who I really am, who God made me to be. I am so grateful for the role that St. Vincent played in my story. My mom and I still make treats and write thank you notes to the caseworkers at St. Vincent for all that they did for us. I remember that when I was little, when I saw the St. Vincent workers, I always felt loved and I felt safe and I grew to trust them. There are still many kids out there just like I was. If St. Vincent were forced to close, I think this would be very sad. I imagine kids who are still in foster care who have learned to trust the St. Vincent workers would feel afraid again. They would wonder, will I be loved? Will I be safe? Will the child care workers still be kind to me? In that case, that would have been very traumatic for me as a child. The work of St. Vincent is so important. It changes lives. It changed mine. Too much is at stake to take that away. Thank you, Martin. Please go ahead, Eric. Um, My name is Eric, and Emily, thank you for your kind introduction. I have to say that um, uh, I was part of a team in Kansas that passed our Adoption Protection Act, and um, it's a real honor to represent that team here today. There are people on that team who uh, deserve to be here more than I do. Um, Some of them are in the room. And um, uh, I could go on and on. Um, Mike Shutloffel and Jeanette Pryor at the Catholic Bishops Conference and Kelly at ADF and um, uh, our, our legislative leaders, um, uh, Susan Humphreys, one of our statesmen, um, and uh, uh, Molly Baumgartner in the Senate, and I'm forgetting a whole slew of people, but um, if you're watching, I just want to say um, thank you. And I think one of the big takeaways I hope you'll have today is that um, we can't do this alone. None of us can. It takes, a, it takes a team, and we all have a role to play. And uh, I was really proud to, to play a small part of it. Um, I'm so touched uh, by your story, uh, Martin and Karen. Um, thank you for what you're doing. Um, you know, <laughs> the first time that I got to speak at, a, at an event at a fancy D.C. think tank, I, um, I asked my boss if it would be appropriate to read from the Bible. And he said to me, Eric, in this town, a lot of people have read from a lot of bad books. It's okay for you to read from the good one. Um, And so um, I hope you won't mind if I do that again here. Um, This is from the book of Romans. It says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit 
You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Um, And so I think that um, to understand that truth um, as a believer and to to accept that God has adopted you as his child um, and then to manifest that same love in the lives of others is just about the most Christian thing that you can do in this world. Um, And you've you've done that. And um, it's just amazing. Um, And and thank you, um, Shannon, for helping to facilitate that um, as well. Um, We live in a country now that um, uh, increasingly doesn't understand the centrality of faith um, in the lives of people who desire to help others. Um, Organizations like St. Vincent or several agencies that we got to work with in Kansas don't come to the public square um, in a des- with a desire to help kids like Martin find a forever family for no reason. They do it because they understand this truth and they are motivated to apply that truth, the beautiful truth of the gospel, in their lives by serving others, by being a father to the fatherless and seeking justice for orphans, as the scripture calls us to do. And there are some who would have us to say, can't you just leave that part out? Don't you, don't you just want to help kids? And um, it's just shameful that there's not an appreciation, that it is the faith that brought them there in the first place. And to cut the faith out means that you would be cutting them out entirely. Uh, it didn't used to be this way. Um, in fact, uh, one of the first, if not the very first orphanage in the United States was founded by the Sisters of the Order of St. Ursula in New Orleans, in 1727. Um, After the Louisiana Purchase in 1804, uh, these nuns found themselves citizens of a new country at a time of pretty um, severe anti-Catholic bigotry. And they rightly wondered what would being a citizen of the United States mean for them at this particular period of time. So um, the Mother Superior wrote a letter to the president and she asked him exactly that question And two months later, the president wrote her a letter back. And this is what he said. I've received, holy sisters, the letter you have written me, wherein you express anxiety for the property vested in your institution by the former government of Louisiana. The principles of the Constitution and government of the United States are a sure guarantee to you that it will be preserved to you, sacred and inviolate, and that your institution will be permitted to govern itself according to its own voluntary rules without interference from the civil authority. Whatever diversity of shade may appear in the religious opinions of our fellow citizens, the charitable objects of your institution cannot be indifferent to any. And its furtherance of the wholesome purposes of society, by training up its younger members in the way that they should go, cannot fail to ensure it the patronage of the government it is under. 
be assured it will meet all the protection which my office can give it. I salute you, holy sisters, with friendship and respect, Thomas Jefferson. We're a long way from there now, um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And um, the policy that we were able to get through in Kansas this year was a good step in the right direction towards ensuring that organizations like St. Vincent's are never punished, are never driven out of the public square, um, because what brought them to the public square is considered unacceptable in in our culture. Um, This was a hard fight, and you may be thinking, uh, Kansas, deep red Kansas. Um, I would remind you that Kansas is the state that gave us both Governor Brownback and Governor Sebelius. Um, uh, The politics of Kansas are complicated. Um, We have a history of contentious fights over religious freedom in Kansas that um, created a difficult context for us to do this particular work. In 2014, the legislature attempted to do a minor adjustment to our RIFRA, and it was at that moment that um, organizations like HRC and the ACLU decided that this was the new front line um, in their battle against people of faith, and, and it blew up. Uh, and then Arizona happened roughly around the same time. You may remember that. Um, and so now when you come to the legislature and you say things like conscious and religious freedom, everyone takes a step back because they remember the battles and they don't want to have to deal with that. Again, um, we picked adoption protection uh, for several reasons. One is because it's needed. And Emily mentioned the several states that have already either by statute or by executive fiat driven providers out of business. We see that coming. We know that a Democratic governor can simply implement a rule, and all of a sudden uh, the several agencies of a faith-based nature in Kansas would be prohibited from doing their work according to their values and would be forced to shut down. Um, uh, We also thought that it would be doable. Uh, I think it's fair to say, even with the context that I mentioned before, um, we underestimated just how controversial and difficult Uh, this fight would be. I mean, helping people help kids find a home, right? It doesn't seem like that should be that controversial, but um, I became aware that uh, Kansas and Oklahoma are the only two states to pass any kind of legislation organization like uh, the Human Rights Campaign would define as anti-LGBT. They were looking for a clean sweep this year in the legislative sessions and were highly disappointed that our two states uh, kept them from getting that victory. Uh, In fact, they deployed Chad Griffin, the CEO of HRC, to Kansas to hold a press conference um, uh, specifically uh, uh, in an attempt to kill this thing at the last minute. uh, they uh, they published uh, full-page ads in state newspapers, uh, Keep Kansas Open for Business, listing the names of major corporations that supposedly opposed our adoption bill. Um, they were forced to take those ads down when it turned out that um, what they had actually done was take um, the members of a, uh, uh, of a, a trade association that had expressed some opposition to our bill and listed the members of the trade association without their knowledge and without their consent. Um, And so at the last minute, they were forced to revoke that. But of course, they didn't write a letter, say, to all the members of the legislature clarifying that, in fact, Google and and Uber and Apple didn't oppose our bill. 
you had um, obviously all of the asinine comparisons to Jim Crow laws um, and that sort of thing. One Republican state senator uh, described the Catholic faith as sick bigotry. Um, Another one who was married to a German man said, we know what it looks like for fascism to ride in a state, and it looks like this. Um, Those are Republicans in in Kansas to get a sense of of, um, what I was describing earlier. Nevertheless, uh, we pressed on. And uh, we're able to find success, I think, um, with, with several key components. And, and one of them I already mentioned, which was a coalition. Uh, we couldn't have done our work if it wasn't for the Catholic bishops, if it wasn't for pastors who were willing to get involved, um, if it wasn't for providers who were willing to get involved. That was especially difficult. Um, it's a big ask to have a provider come to the state capitol and testify and talk to lawmakers. Um, these are not culture warriors in the traditional sense. They're not angry activists like me who like getting in the mud. They just want to help kids. And, um, and, and it's a real stretch to ask them to step outside. And also they're busy helping kids uh, to do that work. Um, but we had some really courageous partners who were willing to come in and talk about, um, and talk about their work and, and why it was important to pass the bill. Um, obviously, legislative um, champions is key. You can't do anything if you don't have a member who's willing to spend real time and political capital to make it happen. And I mentioned Susan Hubries and, and Molly Baumgartner, and there were others um, who really um, who really did that. Uh, a second key for us was not focusing on religious liberty and not focusing on conscience rights, but trying to keep the focus on kids. Um, we didn't want this to be a fight about the LGBT issue. In essence, it isn't. Um, the legal right of same-sex couples to adopt is in 50 states, uh, including Kansas. That existed before our bill, and it exists now after our bill has been signed by the governor. Um, there are something like 40 licensed private faith-based adoption and foster care providers in Kansas. Fewer than half a dozen have a written statement of faith uh, that that guides their work. So we're talking about a small fraction of the providers. Kansas also has a privatized system that's somewhat unique where we have a child welfare agency and then two private case management contractors that cover the state geographically. Um, Our bill exempts those case management contractors from the protections. Um, So we would hear claims from the other side that if you pass this, there may be a same-sex couple or a single person who can't adopt even though they want to or can't foster even though they want to. Um, And it's just obviously facially wrong um, simply by reading a very short bill, which most people didn't do, um, uh, uh, despite the fact that it was a page long. Um, uh, We kept the focus on kids. And um, uh, uh, the idea that um, at a time of crisis, at a time when we need as many providers as we can possibly get, let's not put fights over sexual politics between adults over the needs of children. Let's not create a de facto litmus test that uh, prohibits people from being able to serve at a time when kids are sleeping on sofas in offices because there aren't enough families uh, who are there to take them in. Um, uh, I mentioned you know, the rhetorical stuff, um, all that junk, and you have to confront it head on. Um, uh, it was helpful to us that Susan Humphreys, our house champion, is an adoptive mother of an African-American child. And so you'd have lawmakers go to the well and make all these outrageous and offensive claims. And she's able to just stand up and say, I have a, I have a black son. I'm not racist. This isn't about Jim Crow. Um, and uh, let the air somewhat out of that balloon. It was also key for us that the Chamber of Commerce stayed out of it. Um, I don't expect the business community to be our 
most powerful friend and ally when it comes to the issues I work on day in and day out. But it's nice when they stay out of it because it really has nothing to do um, with their corporate interests. And, and in this case, they did. And if they hadn't, we probably would have failed because um, uh, the, the business interests in our communities are extremely powerful. Um, and uh, 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 and, and that, would have been, um, that would have been harmful. So I'm really grateful that our chamber rightly said, what does this have to do with us? And just um, and just stayed out of it. Um, if you can get the pro-life community engaged, that's hugely helpful. Um, I think it is uh, self-evidently clear that adoption is uh, the pro-life alternative to abortion. They are one and the same issue. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, for good reasons and bad, um, uh, entangling. Um, an already contentious issue like abortion with another contentious issue like the LGBT issue uh, can be uh, can be challenging um, for some people. Uh, thankfully, Kansans for Life came in and helped us. And again, um, that was politically extremely important. And we're very, very grateful uh, that they did that. They also did that in Oklahoma. And I think that if, uh, if Brett was here, he would tell you the same thing about Oklahoma. Um, uh, finally, um, I just have to tell this story um, uh, because um, I, I wish I could tell the whole story of the legislative process because it was miraculous. Um, and uh, I'm kind of a reformed guy and not that charismatic, um, so it, it makes me uncomfortable to say this, but God did everything to make this thing happen, and he deserves all the credit. Our ragtag bunch of warriors couldn't have done it without him. Um, just to give you an example of the way he chooses to work, uh, the day of our hearings, the, the Republican chairman who, who um, didn't like our bill and voted against it and did everything he could to kill it uh, in committee um, scheduled hearings for Equality Day. So while we were out trying to find people to come in and testify, he scheduled the day when all of the opponents of the bill were planning to be there anyway. Um, but on the second to last day of the session, um, when we needed four consecutive votes to pass, two in the House and two in the Senate, all in one day, it happened to be the National Day of Prayer. And we had a whole bunch of people who were praying and fasting for us. And this long shot thing, the Speaker of the House told us, this is never going to work, but if you want to do it, go ahead. Um, and, uh, and we passed the first two votes. It's 8.30 at night. The House is going to reconvene. We passed the first vote in the House with 60, but we needed a constitutional majority, 63, to pass the actual bill. So we had mere hours to find three votes after working on this for a year and really just had no idea if we were going to be able to do it. So I'm standing at the rail outside the room just sort of feeling like, well, we left it all in the field and we can be proud of that. And all of a sudden, um, bagpipes started playing. And you know with bagpipes, it's like this piercing first note, and you have to catch yourself and figure out what's happening for a few moments. And then I started to recognize the tune, and they were playing Amazing Grace. I don't know where they came from. I didn't hire them. Um, uh, but there they were. And in that moment, I just thought, we're going to win tonight um, because, um, uh, because we've been faithful and because we're doing something good, um, and as uh, Paul goes on to write here in the book of Romans, um, because we're more than conquerors through him uh, who loved us. So um, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Eric. I think that was really inspiring and very exciting to celebrate the wins in Kansas and Oklahoma. And now we have some time for 
questions from the audience. If you have a question, please raise your hand and Monica will bring a microphone to you. Thanks so much to all of you for being here and each of, I think Eric made a great point that each and every one of you have played and continue to play a valuable role in this for both ensuring kids continue to be served and also that the providers are able to serve the birth moms and the families and, and the children most in need. Um, I had two questions, one for Eric. I've heard that it looks like Bethany might be now because of the laws passed in Oklahoma and Kansas and, and Texas that they're exploring um, opening uh, for the first time and broadening that scope. So I wondered if you could speak to that and just the, the role of other faith-based providers in Kansas. And then also, Shannon, just a question for you um, and all the work. Thank you for what HHS is doing. Um, just phenomenal work in the opioid crisis in so many different areas. So really appreciate that. But any ways that we can um, serve you and help help highlight what's going on in the opioid crisis and continue to expand that effort. Thank you. Um, things that we heard um, from our friends in Texas was that um, they had already seen providers be forced to shut down, I think at the local level, before the state came in and, and passed their, their act. And those providers can't just set up shop again. It's not that easy. There's a licensing process, all the bureaucracy. You've got staff, and they've gone out and found new jobs. And so people were tentative about getting involved in the game for fear that they would then just immediately be shut out. Um, uh, so that's a, a good argument for passing preemptive laws, um, especially when you see when you see what's coming. Um, to your second point, um, uh, the faith-based providers, aside from being available to do what the other agencies are doing, um, uh, these heroic, mostly women, um, Julian Thomas is in Wichita, Julie Samaniego, Julian Thomas is with St. Nick's, and Julie is with Circle of Love. Um, they meet pregnant women, like, under overpasses, and befriend them, and um, care for them, um, uh, provide for them, encourage them, pray with them, and um, and they, they keep their children from ever entering the system in the first place. You know, and I think that's um, a, a way of contributing that probably doesn't show up in the metrics, um, but is absolutely vital, obviously, uh, in the lives of that woman and that child, but, but for the state as well. So to, res to respond to your to turn on. Thank you. We are warring with the technology today, and we are going to win. So to respond to your second question, I would really encourage our faith-based agencies to look at the needs that are raised in the PowerPoint. There are some significant needs in uh, the opioid crisis arena for children, uh, NAS babies, and I think that our faith-based agencies that would be willing to step into those spaces in a more fulsome way and then appeal to the state for accommodation so that they can meet those needs. What they'll be doing is really addressing the opioid crisis and the needs of foster children and babies 
And I think filling that niche is really a desperate need. Um, We also worked to make sure that the CURES funding for opioid treatment uh, could be distributed through vouchers or indirect funding, whichever term you want to use, which means that faith-based agencies, if they operate through a voucher program in the state with the CURES funding, can remain wholly faith-based in their operations and not have to um, make other changes to their operations. And I really see a niche here that faith-based community can fill. Thank you. Time for one more question. Go ahead. Um, Identify yourself. Uh, My name is Alan Witt. I'm the president of the Family Policy Council in West Virginia. And this is just a simple question of clarification for every member of the panel uh, because of the tremendous work that you do and because of what you were able to accomplish. Would you describe yourselves as just simply awesome, way awesome, or the most (laughs) awesomest ever? Good question. I think they're all superheroes um, and very unsung heroes. I know, Alan, you didn't ask me uh, to really address that, but... um, uh, But he's awesomest. No, one of the the heroes that you reminded me of are the birth moms. Um, And uh, we often talk about the conscience rights and the religious freedom rights of the providers, but um, it's important also to keep in mind that oftentimes a woman who has made the the courageous choice to put her child up for adoption um, is doing that because... um, she knows she can't provide the kind of an environment that she longs for her child to have, a lot of times because she didn't have that environment. Or maybe she did, and she knows how great it is, and yet, for whatever reason, she can't provide that in her own life. Um, when you relinquish the, your parental rights to another agency, you've relinquished your parental rights, and you no longer have a say in the home Um, where your child will end up. So to be able to have a provider who has espoused sincerely held religious beliefs that are in line with um, your desire for your child and the home that they'll grow up in um, is critical for these moms um, and and their ability to trust that as they make this courageous decision, it will um, will come to fruition in exactly the way that, that they hope it will for the child that they love. Thanks for that reminder. And We had a panel actually in April, I believe April 9th, with a very courageous birth mother, Kelly Clemente, whose story was shared uh, by Kelsey Harkness, our uh, Daily Signal senior producer. So if you want to watch an incredibly moving video about the birth mom's perspective, I encourage you to check out the Daily Signal. I have one final question specifically for Karen and Martin. First of all, thank you both so much for coming all this way and having the bravery to address all of us about something so intimate and so personal. And I'm just wondering, um, what advice would you have for anyone who is contemplating going into the adoption or foster care world, um, venturing to try and become a foster parent or an adoptive parent? And how specifically has your experience with St. Vincent's, how would you translate that to informing perhaps their choice to work with a faith-based provider? Hello. Oh. (laughs) Boy, that's a really good question. I hope I can remember (laughs) all that you asked. 
For someone who's considering going into foster adoptive care, <clears throat> I would say go head, head in, feet first, go all in, and embrace every single child as if they were all that you have, all that they have, because that's you are all that they have at that time. And I'm not sure how, what you asked, but I'm thinking it was about what is faith-based organizations, how has that helped being a foster parent? Yeah, so if you were contemplating going into that world, what special, I don't know, support services or gifts or unique experiences could a faith-based agency like St. Vincent's offer? Well, I'll tell you what it is. A lot of times you find that people that want to work at faith-based organizations are the ones that uh, feel, feel, feel kind of called. You know, it's their, their religion has inspired them to go and work there. And they, are, um, they want to help in families and children. They're dedicated and they're full of love. So what I find with a faith-based organization is that there's an environment, there's almost an umbrella, a, a tangible, if you will, experience of sacrifice. If I could nutshell that, it would be all about sacrifice, which as a foster adoptive parent, that's exactly what when you foster and adopt, you are sacrificing of even your heart because some children in a great way get to return back to their birth families, yet that that's also uh, sad and grievous for you because you've poured into them. And a lot of times we're able to uh, mentor and connect with birth families and able to maintain that connection, which is good for everybody. Yet it is it is definitely a sacrifice. And so when you have an agency that's willing to sacrifice with you, that's the kind of agency, because then you're willing to do all of the hard work. It doesn't matter because you have support and people come alongside of you that have the same mindset that you have. And that's how I would answer that. Thanks to each of you. Let's give them another round of applause. Thank you very much for joining. Please check out the Heritage website for more articles on faith-based child welfare. And please keep tweeting uh, about this issue with the hashtag KeepKidsFirst. Thank you, everyone.